You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we have Sam Lister, who's the health editor from The Times. He's in the studio to tell us about an issue that's set to dominate the upcoming election and has prompted a political bun fight in Westminster. Uh, And then we have this situation of a personal care at home bill that runs almost at right angles directly across the route that the Green Paper was travelling down. And that is why people are so furious. Also this week, Ian Chalmers, the founder of the Cochrane Collaboration and the James Lint Initiative, is here to talk about the problems that the public has in accessing information about clinical research. Um, It's somewhat embarrassing that Other countries, um, Iran, African countries, countries in the Middle East, are in some senses ahead of us in terms of trial registration. But before all that, I'm joined by Sabrina Malik from the BMJ's community website, Dr. Doc, who's here to tell us about this week's news. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, Duncan. So what have you got coming up for us this week? Um, This week I'm going to talk about anthrax, obesity and Haiti. Okay, so we'll start with anthrax. What's happening now? Okay, the anthrax story is about heroin that's been contaminated with anthrax and and now 11 people in Europe have died from it. So where are these people dying? Um, There's been nine deaths in Scotland, one in England and one in Germany so far. Where did the heroin they've been using come from? Well, anthrax is most commonly found in hoofed animals, cattle, sheep, goats in Asia and Africa. Um, And it's thought that the heroin that's been contaminated this time is probably from Afghanistan through contact with infected soil or animal skins. There's not been that many cases of it so far. Are there signs that doctors are meant to look out for? Well, health authorities across the UK are working on the assumption that all heroin in circulation carries the risk of anthrax infection and have issued warnings to drug users to stop taking heroin by any route. And they've also um, advised doctors to look out for the following signs. Painless pruritic cutaneous lesions, necrotic skin lesions, edema, flu-like illness, respiratory symptoms, lymphadenopathy and pyrexia. Okay. Now your next story is about obesity. Yes. uh, Michelle Obama started a childhood obesity campaign in the US last week. Um, It's an ambitious programme called Let's Move which aims to increase physical activity among children and make healthier food available in schools and communities that have poor access to affordable and good quality food. So how's she actually planning to do that? The new programme has created an independent foundation called the Partnership for a Healthy America. That will work with federal and local government agencies. There's also the the Food and Drug Administration will also work with retailers and manufacturers to develop a simpler nutritional labelling on food packages. And the US Department of Agriculture has come out with a new food pyramid that will tell consumers which foods are healthiest and which should be eaten in large quantities, which should be limited, that kind of thing. Okay, so they're kind of really carrying on with initiatives that have already kind of been started before and yeah. tried and tested. Has there been any negativity towards the campaign? Uh, well, there's been a lot of scepticism about whether it will work. Um, many people think that you can't reverse obesity with legislation. And there, there are some strong views on this on Dr. Doc. Some people are saying it's unrealistic to address obesity like this, but others are saying, well, extra publicity will help the cause. And she's a popular figure, so I suppose every little helps, doesn't it? Now, your last story is about Haiti. Yes, that's right. I've got a bit of an update. OK, so it's been just over a month since the earthquake there happened, and now I suppose they've 
kind of got past the stage of just dealing with the broken bones resulting from it. And now there must be other things worrying people, like infectious diseases going around. What's going on there? Well, the infectious disease update from the World Health Organization and UNICEF say it's respiratory infections that are the main cause of morbidity, followed by diarrhea and malaria. There have been also two isolated cases of typhoid um, and 12 suspected cases of measles. The WHO are saying vaccination campaigns have begun against measles, rubella, diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. Now, obviously, there's no health service there at the moment and aid agencies are still really intrinsically involved in in providing for people. What's going on with those? Health officials are saying reports from medical teams in Haiti continue to show a decline in trauma injuries requiring treatment, but the need for overall medical care is rising. Organisations arriving in the country are actually being asked to stay between six months and a year in order to ensure continuity of care. So there have been concerns that the aid that people have donated isn't necessarily getting the people to help. Well, the Haitian government started an investigation into claims that some public hospitals and private health facilities have actually been charging patients for donated drugs. UN officials have told Associated Press about a dozen hospitals, both public and private, that have begun charging patients for medicine. But it noted officials didn't actually provide the names of these facilities. And the World Health Organization have said that the reports aren't confirmed. So it's just rumour at the moment? Uh, Apparently, yes. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Sabrina. Thanks, Duncan. You can read all those stories and more online on bmj.com. Now, Sam Lister from The Times is here to talk about free healthcare at home for the elderly and the political storm it's causing. Social care has been the sort of lesser party of the healthcare system in the UK for Uh, decades and decades and decades and everybody has been very aware that there is not sufficient provision of care particularly for the long-term disabled and particularly for the elderly which has been a growing concern because we have a rising elderly population. So after decades of, uh, of, of gradual political to and fro over the issue of what was going to be done with the social care problems, a uh, royal commission, a panel of experts was asked to uh, consider the possibility of uh, free personal care for everybody uh, in in the sort of required categories of the elderly and the long-term disabled. Uh, And they came back and recommended that this would be a good idea. This was in 1999. A couple of the panel members then came back and said, actually, we are going to compile a minority report and we are going to think about uh, opposing this uh, because we think that financially it could be hugely destabilising. Uh, They came back with this report. The government of the day, which was still the Labour government under Tony Blair, uh, agreed with them, sided with this minority report and opted to uh, once again put social care back into the quite long grass. Then uh, in the last couple of years, they have decided to grasp this nettle of what to do about funding of social care again. And... um, So they have compiled a comprehensive green paper, which is the sort of first step in the parliamentary process to creating legislation and actually uh, drawing up laws on what to do with social care. The colossal row that then has erupted over the issues surrounding social care, which is now going to become the signature row running into a general election in, in a month and a half, two months' time, was about the decision by Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister to uh, announce 
his own version of a particular part of social care legislation that he announced as a Labour Party, the governing Labour Party policy. This was halfway through the consultation and he basically said he wanted to offer free care for everybody who was eligible for what was deemed critical needs at home. The concerns were numerous about this. A, nobody saw this coming. B, the calculations appeared to be very, very loosely done. He chucked out a figure of £670 million a year that this would cost to be able to fund this programme, and it would cover about 400,000 people, 270,000 who would be eligible for this free care in their own homes, and then there would be about another 130,000 who would get what was called reablement. And reablement would be having uh, stuffed fix in the homes to allow them to be able to look after themselves better. So Gordon Brown announced this, and the people who had devised the Green Paper, who were part of the Department of Health, his Department of Health, were quite concerned because it ran at odds with this lengthy, voluminous piece of work that they had done, which had gone on for many years on how to reform social care. Then the maths on the calculation of how much this was going to cost started being worked through. It was decided that the Department of Health would be paying about £420 million a year. So they needed to find that. The suggestion was they might be able to find it from cutting their management consultancy budget and their advertising budget and how much they spent on communications, none of which was going to add up to £420 million. And then there was a secondary element that was going to be provided by local authorities who traditionally, over the decades, have been the leading role in the provision of social care. The local authorities, the councillors in charge of social care, a lot of them experts in the provision of social care, were, uh, it would be fair to say, colossally worried about where on earth they would provide this money from. They weren't getting any more money. And these are councils that already are having to make massive efficiency savings because of the uh, macroeconomic climate at the moment. So as a result... Uh, they understandably turned around and said, where are we going to find this money from? And the Department of Health turned back to them and said, uh, you're going to have to make more efficiency savings. And they pointed out that actually what this would uh, end up doing was they would end up having to, having to remove money from their social care budgets, which is one of the largest budgets in a local authority, uh, and start tracking it into uh, a secondary uh, source of provision of social care and the problem and the fundamental problem was they would actually be needing to cover more people in that second option because free care for everybody is a, a proposition that would be extraordinarily attractive to anybody you'd be mad not to try and apply for it uh, and so now we have been left in a situation where we have all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork saying this flagship piece of legislation, this signature piece of legislation that Gordon Brown wanted to turn into a big vote winner, is actually fundamentally flawed. The other political parties were put in a very difficult position by this, and this is classic, clever, dividing line politics. If you're seen to oppose his piece of legislation, 
you are effectively seen to be opposing the idea of giving free care to the elderly, which looks extremely negative uh, in the, in the, just when you're approaching a general election. And then in the last couple of weeks, it has emerged that there has been consensus talks between the three parties behind the backs of the party leaders, between the three health uh, spokespeople. They had been meeting up to discuss how to find a consensus way forward on social care so that the whole project did not become derailed. And then in the last week, uh, that arrangement has disintegrated in very acrimonious terms. It emerged that they had been discussing about various ways of paying for the entirety of social care, the various models of government contribution, bits of personal contribution, bits of insurance policy, how these sort of various ideas would fit together. And Andy Burnham, the health secretary, had suggested that maybe he was uh, moved to look at the issue of a £20,000 inheritance levy. Entirely rightly, he should be considering that. That's one of the options on the table. This then was reported as um, a serious contender. And the Tories, possibly not within Andrew Lansley's control, but possibly from the Cameron hierarchy who felt that they needed to create some distance on this issue, turned round and said very publicly with a set of adverts that were stuck up on, on advertising billboards around London that this was the equivalent of a death tax. £20,000 inheritance levy was effectively £20,000 that you were going to be taxed as you died and your relatives were going to have to pick up the pieces while they were mourning your demise. Uh, Very emotive stuff. And it came out in in a very powerful form and uh, was damaging to the government. And the government reacted very angrily, and understandably so, because there was a behind-the-scenes consensus that they weren't going to take chunks out of each other over the issue of social care. And the bottom line is, it's a, it's a very good idea to have a total rethink of social care. That is the place where we can make substantial savings that are absolutely necessary in the current economic climate. And to create those savings, you must get social care and the National Health Service working in a far more coordinated fashion. They have been in silos previously and they've replicated bits of work and they've left bits of work that needed to be done and neither have done it. And actually, if they were knitted together far more closely, it would be a much more effective system. No one doubts that. Uh, And the green paper that was being developed, this big, big piece of legislation, was going to address those things. Uh, And then we have this situation of a personal care at home bill that runs almost at right angles directly across the route that the Green Paper was travelling down. And that is why people are so furious. Thanks, Sam. You can read Sam's feature online on bmj.com and we'll be keeping up with this story in the future. I'm now joined on the phone by Ian Chalmers. Ian is the coordinator of the James Lind Initiative, which aims to bring together patients and clinicians to set agendas for health research. Along with Fiona Godley, he's written an analysis paper on how we can improve patient information about clinical trials. So Ian, for a start, there's a few charities that already provide information to patients about trials. Uh, How many are there and what they do? The ones that I know about include um, Cancer Research UK through its cancerhelp.org service. 
the Multiple Sclerosis Society and the Parkinson's Disease um, Society. And um, probably the best known of these is Cancer Help UK, and it produces superb information for um, people who want to know about particular trials in cancer. But the others are also who are, as it were, showing the way of what can be achieved if people put their minds to it. Sure. But obviously those only cover three conditions and there will be many more trials going on. Yes, I suppose that um, altogether indeed, uh, they probably only uh, cover a pretty tiny proportion of all the trials that are going on. Let's concentrate for a start on cancerhelp.org.uk, which is the service that uh, Cancer Research UK provide. And it's a really extensive service, and it really helps patients access that kind of information. Could you explain a little bit about what they do? Yes. Well, first of all, they've managed to persuade all people funding cancer trials in the UK to provide the protocols for those trials so that patient information can be derived directly from the protocols. And they have people who are skilled at writing for the public because researchers um, may be good at lots of things, but sometimes they're not very good at uh, producing uh, lay-friendly information, if you see what I mean. Uh, They publish that information um, on a a website, telling people about the trial, what what questions it's addressing, but also they provide a helpline, um, which is manned by... Um, oncology nurses, I gather, mainly, um, to answer questions that inquirers may have about specific trials. And that's obviously a very important service as well. Now, to to widen this out again, you said there that they they access information from all the clinical trials going on and regurgitate it for the public. Is that kind of information at all available for all the other trials that go on? I think what is available for all of the other trials is a protocol, because the protocol has to go both to the people that are funding the research, it has to pass uh, the various regulatory organizations. And so that information is in principle available, and many of us think that it ought to be publicly available. What's lacking is material written specifically for uh, potential participants. We've heard before about the importance of creating a clinical trials register, which would obviously provide information about what's going on. But how can that information be provided to the public in a digestible form? The National Research Ethics Service is requiring that lay-friendly summaries of all research that's been approved by ethics committees uh, is published on a public database. That's a very good framework upon which to build Now, it's obviously important to inform patients of what's going on so they can make choices about uh, the treatment of their condition. Um, Is there anything that opening up this information to the public can actually help the science do? Well, I I personally think that is very likely to be the case. Um, I used to be a researcher in the um, field of maternity care and early neonatal care. And we often found that patients or parents uh, would make comments on our plans which helped to improve the plans. Mm -hmm. For example, pointing out that an important outcome hadn't actually been conceptualized uh, uh, within the protocol and perhaps should be added um, is a potentially very important way of improving the science and indeed the usability of the research. And is there anything about getting better patient 
registration in trials, maybe getting a, a fuller representation of the public? No one can be complacent about the recruitment rates to clinical trials, and it's uh, an issue which keeps on coming up. Uh, one worries about poor recruitment rates to important trials. Unfortunately, there are quite a lot of unimportant trials uh, that go on as well. I think that we certainly ought to be um, seeing this as a way of informing the public about clinical trials of relevance to individual patients and hopefully getting them interested in considering participating. Now, something you mentioned there was the difference between good trials, which will increase our knowledge, and ones which don't do that particularly well. Now, if a patient was thinking of enrolling in a trial, is there any way that they can judge which ones would be best for them to go for? Together with Imogen Evans and Hazel Thornton, I was the co-author of a book written for the public, freely available on the James Lind Library website, about testing treatments. And at the end of the book, we advised people to think carefully about which trials they were prepared to consider participating in. And the three things that we said that they ought to be satisfied uh, about is, first of all, that the trial was um, addressing an important question which had not already been answered, that the trial was registered prospectively and publicly, and thirdly, that they were given written assurance that any of the participants who wished uh, to receive the results of the uh, trial when it was completed would receive them. So those were the guidelines that we offered to the uh, readers of our book, um, and I still believe that they're relevant. Okay. Now, you've suggested some things that could be done to help patient information about trials. Is there any glimmer of hope on the horizon? Do you see any of this being implemented? Well, I think that the most important bit of information is that politicians have called for this information to be made public. So that's an inv a very important endorsement of what's being proposed. I think it's up to um, the people involved in the field to, to get on and make it happen now. Um, it's somewhat embarrassing that other countries, um, Iran, African countries, countries in the Middle East, are in some senses ahead of us in terms of trial registration. Given that Britain was one of the places that led the development of um, clinical trials in the post-Second World War period, uh, it seems a great shame that we're not further ahead than we are in making this information available for patients. Ian, I think that sums it up very well. Thanks for joining us. And you can read Ian's analysis paper online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be joined by Peter Littlejohns from the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, who's here to talk about disinvestment, what treatments can be stopped to save some money. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.